100 years ago last Wednesday, on March the 29th, 1917, a bomb was detonated on the Hejaz railway line at Abu al-Na'am, which was then part of the Ottoman Empire. The bombing was carried out by Heshemite Bedouins, part of the Arab revolt against the Turks that had been raging for close to a year. Partaking in the attack was British officer T.E. Lawrence, whose aim was to smash the rail system upon which the Turks depended to transport their troops about the region. The event provides for an iconic moment in David Lean's most enduring masterpiece, Lawrence of Arabia. With the train crippled from the explosion, a victorious Lawrence climbs up on the overturned carriages and strides like a colossus before the adoring militia. The attack was the first planned by Lawrence since he had joined the revolt, and evidently its success called for celebration. Lean's framing of the moment firstly places Lawrence's shadow falling across the deep desert sands, before we see Lawrence in glorious silhouette, as if deified by the midday sun. It is a far cry from what actually happened. As Lawrence later recalled, his plan was to derail the train and then take the station. But while Lawrence watched with satisfaction as the bomb went off, he waited in frustration for a nearby machine gun unit to open fire on the Turkish troops, spilling out of the carriages. Instead, the only thing Lawrence could hear was the desert wind and the voices of the Turkish commanders organising a recovery. The supporting soldiers were able to hastily erect a joist and place the engine's damaged wheels back on the track. With victory ebbing away, Lawrence was forced to withdraw allowing the train to limp south to the city of Medina, which had been under siege since the previous June. The difference between what happened and how the film mythologised the event is indicative of the Lawrence legend. Within his own lifetime, he was a myth inside of which lived a mystery. A riddle to historians, his contemporaries and his family. Above all, Thomas Edward Lawrence was an enigma even to himself. The truth is I'm an ordinary man. I know I'm not ordinary. Do you think I'm just anybody, Ali? All right. I'm extraordinary. My God, I love this country. I pray that I may never see the desert again. When the war's over, that boy can be anything he wants. Yes. Well, at the moment, he wants to be somebody else. El Orance. Not El Orance. Just Lawrence. I am invisible. Lawrence, the great British hero, entered the world on August the 16th, 1888, in Tremadog, North Wales. His father was Sir Thomas Chapman, 7th Baronet of Kalua in Ireland. I do not understand this. Your father's name is Chapman? Ali. He didn't marry my mother. His mother was Sarah Lawrence, and he was one of five boys she had by Sir Thomas. They had met when Miss Lawrence came to the Chapman estate to serve as governess to Chapman's four daughters. As a boy, Thomas Edward was called Ned and from a young age, he developed a fascination with medieval knights. Later, reading history at Oxford, he secured first-class honours and upon graduation, embarked on an archaeological expedition that had him retracing the steps of the Crusades. But with the outbreak of war in 1914, Lawrence was posted to Cairo, where he sat frustrated at a desk, doing little more than filling in maps and writing geographical essays. Meanwhile, over on the Western Front, Two of his brothers, Frank and Will, were engaged in action. But within months, both brothers were killed and, riddled with guilt that he had been merely fiddling about with pens, Thomas Edward went off to rewrite his destiny. 
he found it in Arabia. Truly for some men, nothing is written unless they write it. His exploits have since become the stuff of near fiction, not least because of the way Lawrence wrote about them in his memoir, Seven Pillars of Wisdom. Published in 1922, it soon attracted the attention of filmmakers. But Lawrence was not interested, and so they had to make do with thinly veiled fictional versions, such as Visitor from Mecca, a Soviet film from 1930, in which the hero is a Russian who wants to tunnel a railway line to Afghanistan. Over the next 30 years, various producers and directors, Alexander Korda, Louis Milestone, Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger, and actors Leslie Howard, Lawrence Olivier and Dirk Bogart, all pursued or declined the various attempts to bring Lawrence to the screen. Ultimately, it fell to Polish-born Hollywood producer Sam Spiegel to succeed where others had failed. Spiegel was a steel-skinned independent behind Oscar winners The African Queen. What you being so mean for, miss? Man takes a drop too much once in a while. It's only human nature. Nature, Mr. Allnut, is what we are put in this world to rise above. And on the waterfront. You don't do anything and you don't say anything. You understand? There's more to this than I thought, Charlie. I'm telling you, there's a lot more. On the Waterfront won the Academy Award for Best Picture in 1955. And Spiegel's next film, The Bridge on the River Kwai, repeated the feat. I tell you, gentlemen, we have a problem on our hands. Thanks to the Japanese, we now command a rabble. There's no order, no discipline. Our task is to rebuild the battalion. Yes, sir. It isn't going to be easy, but fortunately we have the means at hand, the bridge. And in its making, Spiegel collaborated with David Lean. If T.E. Lawrence was a rare breed, Spiegel and Lean's collaboration resulted in that rarest of breeds, a film that is at once classical yet innovative. Before setting out to make the film, Lean sat down and watched another film that is also classical yet innovative, one that draws from antiquity to reshape an age-old quest. Ford opens the searchers with a mysterious figure emerging from the desert. And throughout the film, you can see how Ford's use of the landscape informed Glean on how to turn sand dunes into a character. Among its lasting achievements, Lawrence of Arabia redefined the historical epic. Until Lawrence, the epic crowded the widescreen with as many bodies as possible. Think of Ben-Hur, Spartacus and El Cid. Lawrence does have great crowd scenes, but for long, long stretches, it is just a few men on camels, and sometimes only one man. The horizontal line of the desert articulates that isolation, and the wide screen then accentuates it even more. So, by depopulating the widescreen frame, Lean did what Ford had done. He turned the desert into a metaphor. The landscape of Lawrence's mind, the anvil of his soul, the crucible of his personality. Lawrence of Arabia isn't just an epic, it's a character study, a portrait, and just like a portrait, the film is concerned with a question. Who are you? Who are you? Throughout its three hours and 40 minutes, Lean's film asks that question in many different ways, 
and then goes to great lengths not to reveal the answer. It is a very brave script that is fascinated by, but then insists on maintaining the enigma of its subject. And if anything, Peter O'Toole's performance fervently reinforces the mystery and poses yet more questions. His gait, his gestures, his deliberations before answering, the way he casts his eye towards the horizon, all indicate a character in search of himself. I am Ali ibn al-Kharish. I've heard of you. So, what was Hazimi doing here? He was taking me to help Prince Faisal. You have been sent from Cairo? Yes. I have been in Cairo for my schooling. I can both read and write. My Lord Faisal already has an Englishman. Yes. What is your name? My name is for my friends. Lawrence was equally evasive in real life. After World War I, he enlisted in the RAF under the name of John Hume Ross. When his identity was revealed, he switched it to Colin Dale, before enlisting in the Royal Tank Corps under the name T.E. Shaw. So in the film, Lawrence gets a new name, Elorance, and he is honoured with Arab robes. But the robes are not particular to any Arab dynasty. So he is part of every Arab camp, and at the same time, none. I have no tribe! Remember, Lawrence's love of the Arabian desert began with his childhood fascination with the Crusades. Could this have been his crusade? While he may not have had a messiah complex, the film does suggest he considered himself a prophet. You will cross Sinai? Why not? Moses did. And you will take the children? Moses did! Moses was a prophet and beloved of God! Now dressed in immaculate white, Elorance leads Sharif Ali and his men across the inhospitable Nefu Desert, and when he captures the impenetrable Turkish garrison at Aqaba, he is fated as a demigod. The miracle is accomplished. Garlands for the conqueror. Tribute for the prince, flowers for the man. I'm none of those things, Ali. What then? Don't know. That is a far cry from the moment Lawrence learned he was being sent from Cairo to find Prince Faisal in the Arabian desert. Oh, thanks, Dryden. This is going to be fun. Lawrence, only two kinds of creature get fun in the desert. Bedouins and gods, and you're neither. Take it from me. For ordinary men, it's a burning, fiery furnace. Lawrence lights Dryden's cigarette. And in one of cinema's great moments, he blows out the match and editor Anne V. Coates cuts to the desert just as the sun rises over the horizon. Beautiful as Lean's images were, he had begun his career as an editor, and when he came to direct, there was never a time, either on set or developing the script with Robert Bolt, that he was not thinking in terms of a wide shot, a mid shot, a single, a reverse, and how they would all cut together. And the assembly of shots often carried with it a deeper meaning. While it has never been confirmed, Lawrence's memoirs suggest he was homosexual and that he was also a masochist. However, censorship laws in the 1960s prohibited even the merest mention of either of those realities. But rather than erase them entirely from the story, Lean sought to include them. 
only he could not be blatant about it. This was still the era of the Hayes Code, where filmmakers had to figure out ways of circumventing their prohibited list. Anything other than heterosexuality was not permitted. And even then, heterosexuality had to be very chaste. Filmmakers had to invent substitutes, and one substitute was the cigarette. Watch the old black and whites, and when you see a man and a woman light up for a smoke, you know they're really doing something else. Sir Lawrence's lighting Dryden's cigarette is a clue to his sexual orientation. But what of his masochism? That clue comes earlier in the movie, when Lawrence lights a fellow soldier's cigarette, he lets it burn right down to the end when he snuffs it out between his fingers. His fellow soldier later tries repeating the trick. Oh! It damn well hurts. Certainly it hurts. Well, what's the trick then? The trick, William Potter, is not minding that it hurts. Lawrence does not mind the pain. But instead of the movie coming out and saying that he is a masochist, it has Dryden remark, It is recognised that you have a funny sense of fun. But in this instance, instead of repeating the trick, Lawrence blows out the match and the story cuts to the sun rising over the desert. Why? Because it is in the vast emptiness of the sands that Lawrence will seek and find his agony and ecstasy. It is where he will find and lose himself, create his own legend and destroy his own myth and remain an enigma right to the end.